0: Almost any sport you could think of is available. So even ice hockey, you would never think, let's go have an ice hockey tournament in Israel in July. You know, that's, that's something that you would never even think of. Um, the first time I went, it was in this small little rink up in the very northern tip, right? The rink backed up onto the Lebanese border.
1: Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Dan Radke. I first met Dan in Berlin while travelling through Europe. As you will hear, we hit it off and had a great time eating, drinking, exploring and learning as we wandered through the amazing capital of Germany. Dan is North American, with both a US and Canadian passport, but he's currently living and studying in Germany, where he's about to complete his thesis in computational geometry. Dan played ice hockey both professionally and in the US college system, and has moved and travelled a lot in his life. In today's conversation, Dan and I talk about ice hockey, travel, history, competing in the Macarby games, identity, food and culture, US politics, sitting on the fence, computational geometry and much more. If you liked our conversation, please subscribe to the podcast and share moments of clarity with your family, friends and social networks. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts, which would be amazing. As always, thank you for listening. It is greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen to the over 30 podcast episodes now available, and please let me know what you think. And now, without further delay, I bring you Dan Radke. Dan, welcome to Moments of Clarity.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm excited.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. It's been two years since we met on a one fateful night in in Germany, mate.
0: Yeah, it was... I think I was traveling around, you were traveling around Europe a bit, Uh, you had seen your brother or you were just about to see your brother and head to Oktoberfest. I had been living in Germany for about a uh, year, studying, uh, had a semester break and just started traveling a bit and we were both in Berlin and I want to say there was maybe three people in this little hostel common area, which was probably the most social hostel I've ever stayed at, to be honest. I think, you know, I had been walking around all day. I was just a bit tired, and uh, I don't know how we started having struck up a conversation, but I think things kind of just blossomed from there. And and then I found out that you were you taught history, like World War II history. or
1: Yeah, I was teaching something. it at the time, yeah.
0: Yeah, and then I, I had just been around Berlin by myself for a full day, seeing stuff, but not really knowing a whole lot about it. And then there you are, and I was like, I met you 12 hours too late. It would have been great to have you by my side (laughs) explaining everything to me all day. Um, But, yeah, I think we hit it off, and it seems like everybody at the hostel was either from Australia or California, which was a bit strange in itself.
1: Um, It was, but I think we were the the best two of each um, geographical location.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, no, that was really fun. It was an amazing hostel. I, uh, oh, it's one of the great things to be able to travel, and and especially traveling alone, I think, is something special in itself because you're forced to meet different people and, and get out of your comfort zone. What what was what was your journey like in that piece of travel? I guess that initial ex- exploration of Germany. You mentioned you were in Berlin that day, but was that the start of your trip?
0: No, I had been. Um I had come to Germany about a year prior, and I had maybe a week off in April. And so I did a little trip to Heidelberg, which... So I'm in the western part of Germany, in Saarbrücken just close to the Luxembourg, France, sort of three-country area. Um, I had done a, a few days in Heidelberg, uh, a few days in Munich earlier in the spring. Um, but other than that, not much. I hadn't really gotten a chance to see much of the country. Um, but then this little trip, I went to Munich... Uh, caught a Germany versus France soccer or football wherever you where, wherever you're from you can interpret that the way that you want to <laughs> um caught a game and then I had I had just I had a bond card uh so I had 25 percent off all the trains in Germany um that I had bought as a I think I got it a week before I turned whatever age it was where it tripled in price so I thought, OK, I need to get this now. And then I thought to myself, I need to take advantage of this now that, that I have it. So I just planned a little trip around Germany from Munich, uh, Nuremberg for a night or two, and then up to Berlin for a couple of nights Then sort of circled back through Hamburg and, uh, and went back to Zerbergen before the semester started. So it was nice to, to sort of see the other side of Germany, sort of see a little bit of uh, what was East Germany, because it is a bit different than, than living over here on the West.
1: Yeah, for sure. Really, really different, I noticed, in my short stint there. So you don't sound German, so you mentioned that you got there about a year before. So what's <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's yeah, your background? I, where, where, where are you from originally, and, and what brought you to Germany in the end?
0: Yeah, it, it confuses people, actually, uh, because my last name is German. It's, it's very German. So if I show up somewhere, and all somebody has is my name prior to that, and then they realize that I don't speak a lot of German, they sort of always look at me and go, but your name is German. So uh, that's always been a bit fun um, over the past three years now that I've lived here. Uh, But I'm originally, I was born in California. My parents moved out there uh, just a few months before I was born from Philadelphia. Uh, My dad got a job as a professor at Berkeley. So they moved out. So I was born there, grew up there. And then he, my dad's Canadian So most summers we would sort of travel back to where he's from in Northern Ontario. And then when I was 11, we were getting a bit older and we felt like when we went back to visit and we'd sort of crash at my aunt's place, it was getting a bit overcrowded, I'll say. So my parents were looking and uh, they ended up buying a place on the water up there uh, when I was 11. So every summer, actually every summer until this past summer, uh, we've been up there spent the summer whole summer up there as soon as school ended in June we would hop in the car drive across the country to to Canada spend the whole summer in Canada and then just oh, maybe a week before school started again at the end of August we'd hop in the car again and drive all the way back so that was yeah that's sort of how I grew up sort of always switching back and forth I have both passports so I'm very it's uh you know I can go back and forth and and feel some pride from both countries. Although, depending on who asks, I usually say I'm Canadian, especially these days. Um,
1: it's very safe. But, I see uh, so many Canadian flags on the, on the backpacks of uh, people when yeah. they're travelling, but you don't see many American ones these days.
0: Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and then uh, when I was 15, uh, so I played ice hockey growing up as being Canadian, my dad's Canadian. Um, so I, I was playing ice hockey in California, Northern California, near San Francisco. And then when I was about 15, I had reached an age where there was a pretty good group of players that were my age that I was playing with, but then I was moving up a age and I wasn't quite sure where I was going to play because it seemed like the group was sort of going to break up and move to different clubs. Uh, actually the ice rink ended up shutting down a year later. So there was a lot of uncertainty and I ended up trying out for a team just across the border from where we had our summer house. Uh, it was right right on the border between Michigan and, and Ontario. Um, so I tried out for a team on the Michigan side uh, and ended up making it. So then I had to convince my parents to let me leave home at 15 uh, to go play hockey, basically. So after, oh, there was a little bit of convincing, but um, I eventually ended up moving. And, And staying with uh, just a host family. So I did that. When I was 15, I left and I came back for, you know, once the hockey season ended in March, I would come back maybe for the last couple months of school. But pretty much from the age of 15, I moved out, moved away for the the majority of of every year uh, to go play hockey in Michigan.
1: Well, that's a big move. So, uh, you know, 15 years old, were you desperate to do it or, and, and you had to convince your parents like, wholeheartedly or would you have accepted sort of them rejecting that and you would have been okay with it what was the the feelings going on in in 15 year old daniel at the time
0: yeah uh, that's a tough question i don't know to be honest i think uh it happened early on in the summer uh so i really hadn't had any plan going into the next season um you know the hockey season usually starts at the end of the summer beginning of autumn so Uh, I I really wasn't sure what my plans were going to be. I just went to the tryout basically just to get some ice time, and uh, they ended up liking me and and wanted me to stay. And we knew that I had been with the same club my whole life, basically, from the age of 5 to 15. So to then have to change clubs, uh, I knew it was going to have to happen just to still play at a high level. Uh, And I always wanted to play you know, obviously make the NHL, that's the the number one goal, but to play college hockey in the U.S., a scholarship, have your university paid for play hockey at a really high level, but also get your education. That was always like, you know, NHL was here, uh, playing NCAA was, you know, just under it. It's obviously it's a stepping stone, but that was always like top of my list, what I wanted to do. And so it was sort of like, trying to say, if I stay in California, what are the chances of that happening versus moving to Michigan, you know? So I, I, don't, I don't quite remember how much convincing there was, but I know going, it put me in a good position, at least in the right area of the country and in a good situation where I would have exposure and progress as a player uh, to maybe someday play college. And it worked, so I did play college. So uh, in the end, I think it was the right decision.
1: I guess the status of NHL or the status of ice hockey, is that much bigger in Michigan being a colder climate? Yeah, yeah. Is, it, is it a much more popular sport up there? And also why did you choose to go over the border? Was it to stay in the US and it was a better team, a bigger town? What was the issue of playing in the US versus Canada? Could you have played for a Canadian team nearby that would have been just as good or was it that was the spot you had to pick and, and stay with the host family?
0: Uh, yeah, hockey in Michigan is the sport, you know, in California, it's not, you know, I think I was one of maybe three people in my high school that played hockey and it was, you know, me and two of my best friends, cause we all played on the same team and just happened to live in the same town, uh, type of thing. So it was much smaller, you know, within the Bay area, uh, which has, I don't know, I guess maybe seven or 8 million people. Um, you pretty much know everybody. In the hockey community it's a very small thing especially once you get a little bit older and you start playing at higher levels there's only a handful of, of people and the travel you know just we would have to travel to la or travel to um arizona phoenix so or salt lake city it was sort of to to play at a high level and, and go to these tournaments or play against other kids uh there's quite a bit of travel when i moved to michigan the high school i went to uh had a hockey team and then i didn't play on that team i played on sort of the rep team in the town and then there were you know other layers of hockey and for a town of fourteen thousand people there were three ice rinks as opposed to like one in berkeley which is a massive city in oakland and so it was much more popular you know it just it gets cold in the winter it snows so that's just what happens and it's it's Starting to change. There's a lot more kids coming out of California these days. Um, But I would say still Michigan is, it's one of the, they call it the big, the three M's. Michigan, Minnesota, Massachusetts are sort of the three states that at least, you know, 10 years ago really produced some of the top end guys uh, in the country. And then with regards to Canada versus the U.S., I think a lot of it had to do with the school. So having, I could stay in the U.S., stay in the U.S. school system because transferring from California, it aligned a little easier uh, than the Canadian school system. And not that it would have been that much of a difference, um, but that definitely helped. I also think that on the Canadian side of the border, it was a bit of a bigger town, and there were quite a few guys playing, and I'm not sure I would have made the top team on that side because there were some some really, really good players at my age and also a few years older than me. Um, So I was 15. I ended up playing on the under-18 team in the Michigan side. But I don't think there's any way I would have had as a 15-year-old been playing on the, the under-18 or under-17 on the Canadian side. But just the competition on that side, there were so many more better guys. So I think, in a way, it sort of made my decision easy that I really only had one option at that time. And then trying to convince my parents was, was sort of the only hurdle. Um, but they ended up going with it. So it worked out.
1: What was the, uh, the hardest battle with them?
0: I think it was probably the, uh, the education because where I live, uh, where they still live, where I grew up in California, it was always regarded as very high, like a, a very, very good school district. It always scored very highly on the standardized tests that the state did. You know, it was an upper middle class community. All the teachers wanted to teach in that school system. And you know, when my parents moved, they took all these things into account, and they chose where they where they still live now, based on all these things. Starting young family, so I think they they didn't really they weren't so keen on me leaving that school and that school system to enter into this other system that obviously was not as highly regarded. So I think I just sort of had to had to convince them, like, okay you know, I'll take the AP courses or I'll do the math. that uh, was one year above sort of thing. So I was definitely, when I first arrived there, I think I was in grade 10. Uh, I was doing the grade 11 math courses. So I was sort of always tried to take courses a little bit higher up for me. And I think that, that helped at least. But I think that was their biggest concern was the education. Because at 15, you're still, you know, you still have so much more to learn. Going into only your second year of high school, so I mean, as you know, as a as a teacher, so I think that was their biggest concern. But I think it did okay. I managed to to convince them and get through high school pretty well. So so yeah, I think that was worked out.
1: Yeah, that that journey going towards college and really wanting to enter the college system as well sort of just does, doesn't exist in Australia in in that capacity at all. Um, you know our journey into elite professional sport doesn't happen through the college or the university system it happens through different pathways through the different sports and and you're out basically straight out of high school and and there'd be a an attached team affiliated team to an area
0: i think the the whole college or university sports athletics is really specific to the united states in that it's seen as a stepping stone to professional sports not an alternative you know as okay i i tried professional sports, it didn't work out. Okay, I'll go to university and play. It's still, I guess, competitive, but more recreationally. Whereas university and college athletics in the United States, it's very much seen as, okay, this is a stepping stone for me to make it professionally. And, you know, especially with football and basketball, those are the big two, where uh, you can't even you have to go play college or you can't be you can't play professional when you're 18. You sort of have to go through this process of of playing college. And I think with hockey, it's a bit different because there is a pathway through Canada where you play It's what's called major junior. And essentially at 16 or 17, you're considered professional because you get paid a small amount of money to play. But it means that you lose your eligibility to play college athletics in the U.S., So it's sort of, you go one way or you go the other. There's no flip-flopping. Or I guess you can go from college to major, junior, but you can't go back. It's sort of a one-way street. And for me, uh, you know, my parents are well-educated. They met in graduate school. My mom's got a master's. Dad has a PhD. Um, My dad's a professor. My mom works for the Oakland School District. So in our family, education is very highly regarded. So for me, major, junior, that was never even an option. Like, I was going to college. There were no questions asked. That was going to happen, which, I mean, I totally agree with. I think that because of that and because, you know, the number one thing trying to convince my parents was my education was not going to suffer by moving, you know, I'll still progress and get a good education. Going on to university was the obvious next thing in line and the goal to work towards, which was, playing hockey at a very high level while getting an education and yeah for me it was it's sort of the perfect scenario.
1: Uh, A friend of mine did an exchange program and I think about the same age as you were about 15 he went to it might have been Nashville one of those sort of major centers in the the southern in you know United States and he actually stayed with a host family um, and he was changed forever from that he was just a a bloke, you know, young guy causing trouble, doing whatever around the streets of Melbourne, you know, northern suburbs of Melbourne up here. And when he got back, he'd actually had been staying with a really religious family and um, he'd sort of gathered that identity from them, respect, uh, you know, going to church, the big mega church on on a Sunday over there, but then meeting with the district and they were quite well off as well. So they'd get to go on holidays and, and and do a fair bit. And he loved his stay and he was transformed upon his return. Did you find yourself transforming based on moving out, but then your new host family and their lifestyle?
0: I don't know if I was transformed, but it definitely opened my eyes to just how things are in other parts of the country. I always knew we would you hear stories or, you know, when we would drive across the country, we would stop in certain places, you know, Wyoming or national parks and stuff like that. So you see a little bit of it, but but not really day to day life. So just living in another part of the country and in an area that was not as affluent, like economic wise, just there wasn't San Francisco Bay Area. It's incredibly expensive place to live because people make a lot of money. The whole tech industry is there you know the community that i grew up in like i i said it was a very good school district um it was upper middle class it was almost not really like a bubble but if you don't go out and see other things you could very much have sort of a skewed sense of reality and so i don't think i i mean i played hockey i had friends from outside of the community but to go and live somewhere where life was completely different um you know winter happens, uh, all year, you know, for six months, there's snow on the ground and just going to school. There's the people at school, there were, you know, they come from a pretty large background of people more so than when I was living in California. I think it just sort of opened my eyes in a different way, saw a different perspective on different ways of life. And so I think it definitely, uh, you know, that I'll never, I'll always carry that with me. And I think, you know, whenever I am driving up Michigan or anything like that, or I enter into the, it's, it was in the upper peninsula of Michigan, which is sort of, it's a very proud part of Michigan. I do sense, you know, I feel a sense of, okay, you know, I'm, I wasn't born here and I didn't grow up here fully, but I did spend a good portion of my life here. So I feel like it is a bit of home to me um, as well. And I should mention, I did go to college in the same town. So I spent two years playing under 18 and then went and played under 20 in a different town and then came back and played four years of college in the same original town. So it's definitely, it does feel like home to me after spending so many years of my life there, especially sort of developmental years through high school, going to high school somewhere. You know, I still see people that I went to high school with in town. Um, and it's sort of a nice connection that I have.
1: You mentioned that you went to college there for four years. Did we was the the goal NHL uh, even once you're in college, or had that been something that fired you up to go forward, or was that something that you sort of thought, "Oh, I, I may not may not have it to get into the NHL now, but college will do me." What was the process there?
0: No, I think the whole time, I, you it was always I could see it; it was there. You know, I played against guys uh, who would then a few months later be playing in the NHL or, um, you know, a handful of my teammates signed with NHL teams. Uh, they played NHL games. Um, a few of them are still kicking around on different teams. So I could always, you know, it was sort of right there. You could see it. Um, but I was never, I never got contacted by anyone. Uh, I don't want to blame my shortness of height, but I I don't want to say it's causation, but there's definitely correlation between heights and uh, guys who signed contracts with NHL teams so I'm not blaming my height but it was uh it definitely didn't help me let's put it that way
1: and it's a sport of that I picture as a brutal game a scary game for me even though I come from playing Aussie rules and and people <laughs> from the states and say it's a brutal game but you know I guess it's different you know what what you're used to but that's a sport as in I think my height what I am the shortest player in the AFL is my height and he was picked up number 70 in the draft and now he might make the all Australian team. So best 22 players in the, in the league. And he was many people, his size are are just not even looked at because of their height. But, you know, to get to that standard, you've got to be the most highly skilled in many ways. Did you feel that?
0: Yeah, exactly. It
1: was, uh, you were highly skilled, nimble getting around rather than smashing blokes into and through the glass (laughs) that I see. I mean,
0: that's, that was definitely not my forte smashing guys into the glass. There's a there's a funny picture, actually, uh, of one of one of my really, really good friends who he um, he did make it to the NHL. He played a handful of games, but he's six foot six, which I guess is, I don't know, two meters. And there's a slow mo where I was sort of chasing a guy behind the net and he came to hit him from the other side. And all three of us sort of collided. And I was the smallest in that group by a good margin. I would say at least, you know, seven to eight inches and 50 pounds there's a slow-mo where he's just crushing and my face is like, you could see instantly. I knew it was going to happen and it didn't end well. I, I walked away from that or skated away from that one hurting a little bit, but yeah, I think, you know, the shortest guy in the NHL is, is shorter than me, but like you said, it's few and far between. And those guys are highly, highly skilled and amazing players. So I think I'm nowhere close to that skill level. So I think to be my height, I would have had to be, you know, top, 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 uh, which I wasn't, which is fair, you know, playing college at a high level and doing well in college, having a good, pretty decent career uh, was probably the pinnacle for me. And and I was pretty happy with that. Um, I went, I played one season in France, uh, the top league in France, but I got injured in preseason and just sort of had a rough time. And after that, I thought, you know what, I'm going to stop playing, try to play professionally and, And use the degree that I got uh, in university and actually uh, maybe work a little bit. And then I started, I moved home. I started playing men's league in San Jose with all my friends that I grew up playing with and against. And I was having a blast. I was having more fun playing men's league with all my buddies from childhood than I was playing professionally in France. When I realized that, I knew I made the right decision to just, you know, say, kind of focus on the rest of my life at that point.
1: How does that opportunity in France pop up? Did you search for just somewhere to play professionally or, or did they contact you? How does that work? Uh,
0: yeah, it's a bit of a funny story. So the the uh, one of my assistant coaches, my first year of university, had played in France uh, and met his wife there and then had moved back to Michigan. He was from the the town where I went to university. So he was the assistant coach on the college team. And... After my first year, he actually moved back to France to be the coach of the team that he had played for. He coached that team for three years. And then at that point, I was, I was finishing. So I had done my last year, and I was looking for a place to play the next season. And his team, he was not coaching the team anymore. I think they had financial issues, so they dropped down a few leagues. But then he, I guess, was in contact with another team who, I don't know, I, I woke up one morning and had a text message from him saying, what do you think about this team they're interested so I looked at you know obviously straight google maps look up where it is and it was right in the alps close to geneva and I was like oh okay I could do that so I ended up uh going for just one year me and my best my roommate from college one of my best friends we went together uh which was pretty fun and now looking back you know we always talk about our fun times there and and so yeah a lot of good memories from that.
1: Oh, incredible, yeah, and it's, it seems like a lot of pushing or, or saying yes as well. A, a lot of people just get trapped in their comfort zone. I grew up in the Bay Area. that's where I'm gonna stay, but it seems like you were happy to be more transient. Do you think that happened with your summers away in Canada that you were able to see the the idea of a life somewhere else as well?
0: Um I think so, yeah, I think you know spending time in Canada or whether it was just you know my family, my mom's from New York, my dad's from Canada. Now they live in California. They've met in Vancouver on the other side of Canada when they're at university. They just sort of moved around and seen different places. They always talked about the year after they got married, uh, they took a trip around the world and just all these different places they saw. So obviously traveling was always, I was always pretty keen to do. I don't think I'd be in Germany right now if I wasn't. So just saying, you know, what, yeah, what's, what's the harm in going for one season to France? To have a good time. It was more, I was chatting with my friend, who we ended up going together and we were like, what's, why not put off real life for one more year? You know, why not go have a good fun year in France? So, I mean, that decision was, I guess, pretty easy. But when it came down to it, it was, okay, do we want to find real jobs or do we want to go play hockey in France for a season? So...
1: Oh, yeah, I'm not sure many people actually.
0: would
1: say let's find real <laughs> jobs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But a lot of people do. A lot of people find that, uh, you know, tra- trap themselves almost with that expectation. So many people I talk to now, they're 21 and they're just like finished and they're like, I'm desperate to get a job but I might just travel for it. But, uh, you know, I was that person that was, you know, I want a job. I want to show off what I went to uni for or whatever. And, and it seems that there's a lot of learning to do in your 20s. I mean, all, all of your life, but yeah. I mean in when a I came
0: back when I came back from France I was 24 maybe and I was desperate to get a job mm. uh because after the season I went on a six week trip around Europe and basically spent all the money that I had made playing hockey that season so I came home pretty broke so I was pretty desperate to get a job at that point so I know what that feeling's like but but I definitely I think people should travel I think it's it really, it opens your eyes to some, some different things. And, you know, sometimes you go to a city and you think, Oh, I really like this city. Sometimes you go to a city and you're like, eh, I don't know. I couldn't see myself living here, but you'll never really know until you go.
1: I want to move into travel and and the different journeys you've been on and All of that, but just a quick question Canada, USA, Olympic Games.
0: Oh, Canada, every time, every time. Canada. Yeah. All right. And I always, I always get, uh, I would always get a given a hard time for that. When I was at college, about half our team was Canadian, half our team was American, because we were right on the border. And the tuition was actually, if you were Canadian, you were considered in state tuition. So it was, it was a lot cheaper. Uh, to go to my university than it was as a Canadian than it was to go to pretty much any other instead of being considered an international student, you're actually in state. So it was complete opposite sides of the spectrum. So every I think maybe once or twice a year we would have Canada versus US, just a little scrimmage uh, at practice one day. And I think I was I was always on the US team my first three years because we it was we would have quite a few Canadians. And then my last year, we actually, we didn't have as many Canadians. So then I switched teams, actually. I went and played for the Canadian team, which was, uh, it was pretty funny. But now I always say, I actually, I've gone to Israel twice to compete in the uh, Maccabee Games for Canada playing hockey. So I've, now I've, I always say like, I've made my decision now that I've actually played for Canada in an international competition. and So it's definitely Canada, but it, it always was.
1: Yeah, <laughs> A decision made for you then. I, I was going to actually get there. You beat me to it. I can see the, the top. Yeah, I got the shirt on. Actually. An Australian top though, isn't
0: it? It what, is, what's yeah. I tra- oh, I, so I actually didn't know this. The first time that I was there uh, in 2013, you know, we, it's, it's similar to the Olympics. I think it's actually like the third biggest sporting event in the world behind Olympics and Paralympics. And it's basically, I guess, the Jewish Olympics uh, in Israel. So you go and you get you know full team kit basically, Sh- couple pairs of shorts, couple t-shirts, hats. So yeah, you know you look official while you're there. Then at the closing ceremony, I went and I realized it was just a free for all. Everybody was trading shirts, and you know it was sort of a really cool idea where you so you can go and and sort of get stuff memorabilia from other countries. Um, you know why do I need three team Canada shirts? I don't need three team Canada shirts. So. The first time I wasn't that prepared and I was sort of scrambling around to try to see what I could get. Um, And then the second time I went, which was 2017, I sort of knew. And so as at the opening ceremonies and as everything went along, I sort of was eyeing up all the different swag that these countries had. Um, And, you know, you'd look like, "Ooh, that Argentinian jacket's pretty nice. I wonder what what I could trade for that. And then this shirt was, I saw some of the Aussies wearing the shirt and I thought, oh, that's a nice shirt. Actually, the Aussie, the women's basketball team is in the same hotel as us. And we just kept bumping into them. Uh, And so we started chatting and then ended up trading a few things back and forth. And actually, I'm, I remain a bit of friends with uh, one of the girls on the team. And uh, she was in San Francisco later that summer. And I met up with her and her boyfriend and had a nice afternoon. And I still, I'll chat to them on Instagram every once in a while. Uh, so it's pretty cool the relationships that you make from that thing. Just keep going, and obviously the cool shirt. This is one of my favorite shirts to wear. It's all the time. I also have a pair of shorts and a hat and all sorts of stuff. So it's cool memorabilia to look back. That's definitely something. So it's the Maccabi Games. Is that how? Is that what it's called? So there's a, It's either Maccabee or Maccabee or Maccabi right. or yeah. There's a few different pronunciations. I don't actually know which one is. 100 correct
1: because i've never obviously heard of of that and, and until i met you and you say it's a massive tournament how many people go is it like almost every country in the world is involved or, or many countries um, what was your first take on 2013 what did you notice and, and learn
0: yeah i noticed there were some major major countries as you would think you know Uh, countries that have large populations send large groups but also you know they have to be large populations of jewish people so uh, for instance australia there are tons of people from australia u.s canada great britain had a pretty good showing in terms of just amount of people but it really there's almost any sport you could think of is available so even ice hockey you'd never think let's go have an ice hockey tournament in israel in july you know that's that's something that You would never even think of Um, the first time I went, it was in the small little rink up in the very Northern tip, right? The rink backed up onto the Lebanese border and we were in the North part of the country for about a week, just the hockey teams because that was the only event that was happening up there. Uh, And then the last time I went, it was, they built um, an arena, uh, put an ice rink into the main basketball arena in Jerusalem, the Macbeth Jerusalem, the, the team in Jerusalem that plays in the Israeli league. You know, Amari Stoudemire is on the team. They put an ice rink in that arena. So that was really cool. The, the second, the two experiences were just completely polar opposites of each other. But it was pretty remarkable just to, to go and see everybody. And, uh, you know, you see so many different countries, a lot of South Africa. But like I said, they have all sorts of events. There was a, we met a guy on the Canadian team who played chess. And just talking to him about chess in the hotel, you know, we, I think we saw him in the elevator and me and my friend were just talking to him and we said, Oh, how how did your match go this morning? And he said, yeah, I lost, uh, you know, I knew I had lost about 40 moves before I lost (laughs) and, and me and my friend were just sort of what? And he said, yeah, I made one mistake. And then that, I knew it, I knew it was over. Um, so that to me, that is crazy. Like, you know, I, I could never wrap my head around being that, that good at, chess where you oh. just see everything so far in advance but um yeah there's lots of sports they have cricket they've got you know all these yeah it's it's pretty cool i think and unfortunately there was supposed to be it again next year but they postponed it one year because of the pandemic just to make sure that the country is in you know it's also propaganda for israel inviting everybody and putting on a good show so they want to make sure that that they're able to do that from, um, 2022
1: would would that be something that you'd be going to this year or or do you have to really be training with your your team for for a while like how do you make it do you just apply or is there a selection criteria how does it work
0: um yeah there is a selection criteria the first time uh the first time I went I was playing college so it was between my third and fourth year and my one of my teammates uh was from Toronto he just he texted me one day in the summer and he said, oh, I guess I just tried out for the Maccabee Team Canada. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. Like, I had never heard of it. And, uh, and then I said, okay, how do I get on the team sort of thing? And so that year there was a selection process and uh, somebody, the guy who was in charge of putting the team together had a pretty wide network of people he knew. And I guess somebody had come to watch me play one game in college. And from there, he said, yeah, okay, you're, you're good enough to be on the team. That might be the best team I've ever played on. Like some of the, the guys we had on that team, it was remarkable. And then the second year, I think there was a tryout a year before, but I had, I had sort of reached out. They knew that I had been on the team the time before, and I just reached out, and I had sort of known the coach a little bit. So we had good conversation, good communication. And I hadn't been, I'd only been playing men's league in San Jose at that point for a few years. But I knew, you know, when the tournament was, so I made sure, you know, starting in January, uh, I was like, okay, I need to to have a bit of a workout program here to like make sure that I'm getting myself ready for July. And so it ended up it worked out pretty well. Um, I managed to to not kill myself physically during the tournament, which was nice. And then the, I mean, last year I was supposed to play with my brother, who's a few years younger than me. Uh, that was our big chance to play on the same team together. But he tore his ACL. A few oh. months before the tournament, so now it was. You know, he keeps asking me, "Okay, are we going to go back again?" Because he was he was one year too young the first time I went, and then got hurt last time. So now our plan was to go again. Um, so we'll see what happens in a couple of years, but who knows? Uh, I got certainly it. don't at this point. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's it. And as you said, it's you know it's been postponed, and yeah, we'll see what the what's going on with the world. Um... You know, as, as it comes, I guess. I grew up in a, went to a Catholic school in an area that was quite Italian. And, you know, I was brought up Italian and I didn't really realise that it wasn't the main thing until I moved out of home and went to a country town and found out that I was different. <laughs> I didn't feel it, didn't seem it, um, but they hadn't heard of the foods that I liked. There was nothing, no shops where I could go that had what I was used to and I just thought it was normal and it, it, you had to hunt for it and, you know, then you found your connection and I felt Italian. I felt I felt what I was only because I'd left it. Did you feel, I guess, Jewish growing up? Did you consider yourself, that's my identity at all or was it just a a thing that you you were? And then going to Israel, did it awaken anything in you? Did it change your identity in any way?
0: I think so, yeah. But uh, growing up, um, you know, my mom is Jewish from New York, and her whole side of the family is Jewish. My dad's not. He's Baptist from Canada. So it was sort of, you know, both holidays, we'd sort of do everything. We We didn't necessarily go to church in California very often. But whenever we were in Canada, we'd go to church with my grandparents. And uh, when we were at home, uh, we would go to you know the when there were the holidays, the high holy days, we'd go to temple and yeah. I think uh, just going to Israel, being in Israel, I definitely I've sort of felt more of a connection to uh, to the Jewishness or Jewish side, especially with the Jewish side of my family, the ancestors and stuff like that. I mean, growing up in California, there was lots of not lots, but it was a pretty large Jewish community. You know, I would see people at school and then go to temple. I'd see the same people or I, a couple of t- nights a week, they would have what they would call teen school where it was, you know, while you were in middle school or, or high school, you would go once a week. And, you know, I like, I learned how to bake some oh, delicious uh, Jewish, like little pastries and stuff like that as part of it. And just like a little, I don't know, I, I guess it would be like Sunday school or i don 't know what the equivalent would be, but you know it was, it was friends from high school and then neighboring high schools who you'd meet so it was pretty um it wasn't a small community by any means, but I was never My brother and sister were bar in uh, but I was not, and I attribute that to just playing hockey and and feeling like I didn't quite have the time with hockey and school to be studying learning how to speak Hebrew on the side. But when I went to Israel for the first time, they sort of had this, I don't know how gimmicky it is, but it was like, uh, have your bar mitzvah at the Western Wall. And it was a 10 minute thing, you know, repeat after me type of thing. So I did that. And yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely sort of, I felt more of a connection to it and also just being, being there and sort of going around to some of the monuments like going up to Masada and hearing the story of Masada. and Yeah, it was definitely, yeah, it was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that's incredible that you were able to experience that. Was that for everyone or only those that hadn't had their bar mitzvah prior?
0: I'm sure everybody had the opportunity. Some people, I, you didn't have to do it. It was just, for me, it was, it was there and, and I felt, you know what, I didn't do this when I was younger. This is a good opportunity. It was pretty nice, actually.
1: And I know that. So your your mum was uh, from New York, and obviously part of the Jewish community over there, and, and moved and, and married a, a non Jewish man. Is was that a goy? Did that a goy? A goy. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'm trying to think of now what Elaine is to the um...
0: Shiksa. She- <laughs> She's got Shiksa appeal. <laughs>
1: It's fantastic. So we go in and a Shiksa. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Um, Did that go down well with, like, her family? Was that something that's okay? Was it not a thing at all? Do you know?
0: I don't know about her family. I think it might have been okay with her family. I know my dad's mom had uh, had a tough time with it at the time because she was pretty religious, pretty active in the church and everything and, you know, was – from what I hear constantly trying to set my dad up with uh, nice young girls from, from church sort of thing uh, as he was growing up and, and stuff. So from what I heard, she, um, she had a tough time with it. Although the joke is that once that once my dad's sister married a Catholic, then that was like worse than my dad marrying a Jew. So then it was like, Oh, it was okay then
1: broke the ground
0: <laughs> yeah exactly it was like oh well at least she's not catholic sort of thing yeah. but no i think eventually i forget what happened something happened at some point and i think then my my grandmother sort of warmed to it or I, I sort of accepted my mom um a little bit but you know as far as i know there wasn't that much of a of an issue they were married in new york at the un so pretty neutral they had a rabbi and a minister very neutral. They got married on the evening of July 2nd, which is halfway between Canada Day and the Independence Day in the U.S. So it was like they tried to split everything right down the middle uh, as best they could.
1: It's a very academic way to do it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Reason and logic above all else. It's great. Um, So uh, what what else did you you experience? I want to delve into that. I guess feeling in Israel both times, like you know, one time up in the north near Lebanon, was there anything going on at the time in 2013? I, I can't remember if there was any conflict mm, or danger at the time. It was pretty.
0: Yeah, I think like especially you don't see it when you're there. You don't see how much defense is actually going on, but because the, it's such a big event and they it's, they're very proud to put it on, and because. You know, it's not propaganda, but the idea is when you come to Israel, they're trying to motivate you to move back and contribute to the society, the Jewish community, society by moving to Israel. And so they want to, they want everything to appear great. So there is, but you, so you don't really see it. You know, you don't notice that, you know, there's lots of military presence going on, but. You know, they they know everything. There's constantly um, they're constantly monitoring everything, especially by the borders. Um, I mean, we took a bus along the border uh, to go over to the to the sea. And it's there's, you know, two tall fences, barbed wire with sort of a no man's land in between all, all the way across the Lebanese border. We took some tours into the Golan Heights where you could see like old bunkers and you would look out and you could see Syria and you could see Lebanon. Um, and they would sort of say, you know th- there was a battle here, and this there so there was definitely some areas that where you went on tours and there a bit of a history lesson, but there was nothing really imminent uh, at the time.
1: It's interesting because I just found out the other day that Melbourne, I think after New York, is the biggest Jewish center outside of Israel, and I had no idea. and Melbourne separated, I guess that the south, southeast. Has a massive Jewish presence. There's a few suburbs that you know, you know, that's got the the Holocaust Museum and the restaurants and the streets and and, and everyone that's Jewish, I guess, grew up there or lives there or, or is from there. And in my my side of town is full of Lebanese people. I went to school with, you know, twenty five percent Lebanese people at least. So I'm from at the other end. So very very little, uh, I guess, understanding of of Jewish culture except from what you see on TV and what you learn in history class and, and all of that. So that's something surprising to me to find out how Jewish Melbourne is in, in certain aspects and how much of a presence around the world, you know, our, I guess, Jewish hub is uh, and, and how prominent that is. And it, it's a fantastic and, and amazing to see. And, and since I've sort of been an adult, I've been able to go there and, and learn a bit more. So that's, that's one level. But you mentioned the word like propaganda earlier as well. So I hear a lot of... Anti-Israeli sentiment growing up with Lebanese people, Syrian people, uh, Egyptians—you know, all sorts of different people from this area—and you mentioned the word propaganda a few times. So, and I, and and on top of this, I heard Mark Marin, um, who's a Jew, speaking to Seth Rogan, who's a Jew, and but they both were anti-Israel in their sentiment, in an like a really, really pro-Jew and proud Jews, but anti-Israel. I guess, (laughs) where do you sit on this spectrum? Have you had to battle through, I guess, political ideals versus heritage and and just loving people? And, and, you know, have you had that battle internally at all?
0: Uh, A little bit. And I haven't done as much research as I probably should. And it is a bit, it is sort of an internal battle because on one hand, yes, I'm Jewish, I'm very proud of it. But you hear the sides of, uh, you know, Palestinians and how it was sort of a forced takeover of the land, which also sounds not humane. So it's sort of, it's a weird, you know, I'm not really sure. And I haven't done enough research to really know what happened or what is happening. Because, yeah, I think both sides, it doesn't sound great from either side. Yeah, I'm not really sure. And in general, I try to, I try to like, turn away from any sort of, that's such a, such a hot topic and such a debated topic that I try to stay out of it. Um, I think it's a I rare know.
1: thing, a rare thing to be able to because not only in this situation, I'm, I think generally people have an opinion about everything and anything and so many people on topics that they don't know much about never admit that they don't. They're just like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I've got this stance and I'm right. Don't give me any alternative facts, you know yeah. this is my my point of view so it's a it's almost um
0: I'd much rather admit to not being well informed or you know maybe I need to do some more research because if you i i think if you just are set in your ways and say you know have an opinion on something you really don't know much about, I think you can come off very arrogant or I don't know. I, I just, I feel like I don't want to make an opinion on something and that I don't know much about, especially on a topic like this, where it's so heated, so debated. And like, I don't think anybody's right. I don't think anybody's wrong entirely. There's, it's just such a, I mean, it's been going on for thousands and thousands of years. It's not like this is a new issue, but it's very, I don't know. It's a very tough topic to talk about just that whole thing in general, I think. Yeah. I don't, that's, that topic is such a, it's so contentious. And I would say it's even harder to talk about than like politics because at least, well, I guess it depends on where you are, but the politics in the U S is so binary. It's such an easy thing to talk about. It might be difficult to talk to other people about it if they don't share your same beliefs, because there's a lot of stubbornness, I think that's happening right now in the country. But the Israel-Palestine, there's so many factors that come into it, but I feel like it's such a, it's a very hard thing to to really grasp fully.
1: Yeah. No, no, but I thought your answer was great in, in the sense that you were admitting, uh, you know, the, the I guess the lack of understanding on the issue, you know, and, and that comes from you make a decision what to focus your attention on and and I think people have been studying that, living through that, you know, on both sides of the Israeli, the Palestinian, the, the, the Arab side in general have come across it from the hardline stance and then the, the stance of wanting to make peace and, and trying everything and, and we're still at a point where it is so difficult, as you say, it, and it's much more difficult than, as you say, the, the stuff that we try not to talk about left versus right in American politics and Australian politics, whatever it might be. So, yeah, but on that subject, on that topic... You and I we obviously met in Berlin. We we're having fun. We we're on the beers and then, you know, traveling the next day, getting a great coffee, nice breakfast. I think you had a smaller breakfast than me after a seedy <laughs> a seedy morning on one of the one of the nights. But but what we did do and, and I didn't even actually know your background at the time at all. We went across town and um Walked through across most of Berlin, I reckon. It was a massive day that we spent together, and and one of the the places that I'd heard of but you were going that day, and I I, I joined you was to go to to a museum, and I, I remember mm, it was yeah. extremely touching, and and um and it was an emotional day in a way. Can you sort of explain like your intention going, how you felt when you when we went there, and a little bit about it, and your feelings around it
0: yeah i actually I had totally forgotten about that until you just mentioned it, and I remember going and I thought it was something completely different than what it was. I think the museum I had in mind was actually underneath the uh Holocaust memorial that's closer to Brandenburg
1: yeah Aiden. yeah the main touristy area with the um the the structures, the stone structures sort of
0: yeah you know, between, and I yeah. think there's a museum underneath yeah, there is I didn't go uh, to that one either. <laughs> No, I, I thought we were going to that one. That's right. <laughs> um, but this one, it was almost like a, like a museum of modern art focused on Jewish history in Berlin or in Germany. I, I, unfortunately, I don't quite remember. But it was unlike anything any museum I'd ever been to. The two things that really stick out to me in memory was the, the garden in the back, where it's sort of everything was a bit off angle. So your senses were just completely messed with almost, you you know, you didn't really quite know what was level, even walking, there were cobbles, but even walking, you felt like you were sort of always off balance a little bit. And I think that it was to represent the how um, Jewish people are were always sort of being pushed out of one area and having to resettle in a new area and never really feeling comfortable. I hope I'm remembering that right. Um, Yeah, no,
1: that's how, that's how I took it too. That, that, yeah. the, the architecture, I think it was designed and built as a, as a museum of feeling and, and of space rather than of looking at things. And that was, it was the idea of feeling, Rather than seeing, uh, I guess, history and, and understanding, but that was about displacement and refugee status and yeah. being constantly pushed around the world. I remember being so, like feeling sick in there. I, I remember, yeah,
0: it, yeah, it, it was amazingly done. Yeah, which I think speaks further. It's it was focused on Jewish uh, history, but I think you know that it, that aspect could be applied to any sort of not topic but refugee situation and you know anybody who's being displaced. Uh, and trying to just not feel uncomfortable. And then the other one was there was that that room that was quite tall. It was like a, a, it wasn't a tower. I I forget exactly, but it was completely dark. Uh, But there was a small light at the top, and it was incredibly quiet. And it just, it almost sucked all the hope out of you, sort of. It really, and there was, I don't know if you remember, there was a ladder on the wall. Mm. But it started about, five meters up on the wall so you you couldn't actually get to the ladder and yeah it felt after a while it sort of you felt like it was sort of sucking all it was almost I don't know how uh into Harry Potter you are how much you know about it but it it was like a Dementor sucking hope and joy out of you that's sort of what it felt as we stayed in there a bit longer um, it
1: was, yeah, it was a door, a big metal door at the end of a corridor and it sort of, it was an amazing building. I'll, I'll, I'll link it in the, the show notes thing to yeah. find out for people to go in there in Berlin because it's sort of out of town and not the main sort of place to look look up, I guess. But we went there and and the end of this sort of a corridor that sort of went into one door and it was this big metal door, you open it and then you shut it and it's silence and I don't even think you see where the door was. It's like a little tiny handle. So, you're in there and as you say it's it's dark there's a little thing of light and almost th- the ladder's 5 meters high and the idea i think reading about the architect's design was that every element it's like you can almost get out like yeah, there's exactly. almost jump from wall to wall to reach the ladder but you just can't physically do it you can almost you know call out for the light but your sound is drowned out it's just like this yet yeah, i don't know 12 meter high Tower as you that, that sort of goes up to this little piece of, piece of light where you could almost squeeze through so every element of this it was just hopelessness, and that represented the holocaust and and how people would have felt going to those death camps basically, and yeah. um, you know how over six million well not only Jews but mostly Jews but everyone that suffered under Nazi Germany was feeling. And I sat. I remember, yeah, we were sitting there I think good 10, 15 minutes probably just sitting and just like, wow, you know, we'd had this massive big day and big night and whatever and all of a sudden it was like the dementia sort of style and, and it put me, it was, I think it stuck with me to today. I mean it's, it's, it was an amazing way to feel the horror that would have been horror and also hopelessness of those that suffered.
0: Yeah, I I had forgotten about it, but when you brought it up, I immediately all all the the memories that came back was that feeling of being really disoriented, the feeling of sort of really being down and and having hope sucked out. It, yeah, it's, yeah, I would agree.
1: And I think the third um, area, the one I remember was walking on faces. It oh, the, was
0: the faces, right?
1: It was like metal plates and, and yeah. you walk on the faces of of people that represented, you know, victims of the Holocaust. And as you walked, it would be like screams almost, like the clattering. Yeah. And, and I remember that being really confronting too. And, and it, it, like it almost says it's not disrespectful to do this. This is what you're intended to do, to walk across and... and feel it but once you're sort of half I I just remember thinking like I don't want to be walking on these this is weird and it was just it it really how visceral that feeling is to be able to be among just a room but for what it actually makes you feel was incredible and so it's a a recommendation if you're in Berlin to to
0: get yeah and I think also um I don't know if it impacted us more that we thought we were going to this other museum we were really not prepared at all for what we were walking into, um, mm. which I think probably made it more of a raw emotion, raw, more raw physical emotion that we had.
1: And then I, I remember almost getting lost. We thought we'd uh, go to that giant, um, uh, where the Berlin airlift. The airstrip.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'm, I was, I had not even heard of that. Uh, even though it was mostly American planes that were flying in mm. and, I mean, looking back, I think that's just a part of when you're doing US history or World War, you know, European history, it's almost too recent to have made it into textbooks to learn in high school. So that's something I had no idea ever happened. So I was super uh, intrigued when you started telling me about it and you knew, you know, all the history about it and all this stuff. And so that's, you know, looking back, I was like, ah, I wish I. him by my side the day before telling me all these history things about everything i was seeing
1: but um i can't even remember the name of it which is key would be on a test the name of that airfield and i'm like i know exactly what happened the dates but i can't figure out the name so that's my um drawback in my why (laughs) my expertise is low but um but it was incredible that actually had a refugee camp smack bang in it i remember We were together, and there was like all these shipping containers, and there was people behind barbed wire fences at the time that were, I guess, being relocated or something at the time. So there was refugees within that, and it was just a strange place with like people juggling, riding bikes, skateboarding this massive field, picnics, this and that. And then there was like a uh, this is a massive, like you could walk around it in a day almost, couldn't you? And and then, but there was an area where there were, I guess, recent arrivals from conflict zones, I guess, from Syria and, and, and places that were just there. And that was weird. And that was something I don't, didn't even reflect too much on until now that that was there. But uh, it's an interesting place, Germany, and Berlin especially with that the history, the recent Cold War history as well as the Holocaust, as well as, you know, yeah. the new arrivals from the Middle East as well. It's just an interesting place.
0: I find I... I sort of put Berlin in the same category as New York, well it, where it's while it's in Germany, it is its own culture, its own thing. you know New York is in the u s and you get some glimpses of u s culture, but it is its own thing. New York is its own animal, uh, and I feel like having gone to Berlin and also visiting a lot of other places in Germany, Berlin is like its own separate place uh, in my in my own
1: mind at least. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I got a very different idea of Germany from Berlin to the rest of the places that I did visit, you know, the the Black Forest and Freiburg and all that and then up towards where you, you're on the way to you and then along the Rhine yeah. and all of that. It was just very different and even Munich, yeah. yeah. Um, interesting place and, and well worth visiting. I think travel is one of these amazing things. What 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 else have you learned from your travel journeys um, that you can uh, I guess provide at the moment.
0: As I've gotten older most of whenever I go places I always try to pick out food that in that area or not even food that's native to that region but just good food. And I think I get this from my sister most of it. Where she she her job is uh she works in London and she travels around the UK and sort of educates communities around the UK on how to accept refugees, but because of this, she's traveling to these very remote parts of the UK, and she's always eating at these incredible restaurants, and, and so I think her travel has influenced me. It's rubbed off a little bit, so I always try to pick out these different, you know, try to get some good food here and there, and so... I don't know if that answered the question. I don't really know. No, no, because
1: what what is travel? For travel, for different people, travel is something different. And I think we connected over food and and eating at restaurants, which is that amazing Vietnamese, I think it was. Yeah, that place
0: was really good.
1: And I had the view.
0: (laughs) I remember. Yeah. I didn't even realize you had a view. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I had this most incredible view of Berlin and the and the big um, what the is a radio, radio tower, tower there and, and you were just staring at some wall. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, um, but th- food is powerful, and I mean, coffee is powerful. Uh, you know, all of these things that are amazing and, and change the way you feel and think about people. So, connecting on a cultural level, you, you mentioned, you know, even going to Jewish Sunday school for, you know. And you mentioned the pastries. That's what the memory is. And I even said it when I said, you know, what was it learning? What was it like learning to be Italian? It was the food again. So, culture is so connected to food. And I'm watching a show, David Chang's um, oh, love Ugly it. Delicious. And I'm yeah. just, and a breakfast, lunch, dinner as well. I've been smashing these. And I'm just thinking, I'm almost on the verge of tears about food and about people's connection to food. How is this happening? So, I get you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I really liked that show. Um, And actually, so growing up in California, like Mexican food, or at least what California has made Mexican food, it's one of my favorites. The only problem is you can't get it outside of California, really. And even (laughs) we were just I was in California all summer and my sister was there. And there's some Netflix show about tacos. I forget what it's called. But she was saving it for when she was in California because she said, if I watch this in London, I will not be able to get tacos. At least in California, I'll be able to get tacos. And then the whole show takes place in Mexico. And the whole premise is you can only do this in Mexico, in these regions of Mexico. <laughs> and so it even, even then she was said oh, it was pointless. Um, but the Ugly Delicious, uh, there's a, a whole episode on tacos, I think. Yeah, and yeah. there's a taco place in Copenhagen. And so whenever I go to Copenhagen now, I'm like, we we need to get these tacos. I need to get my taco fix for the next six months or however long it is um, until I go back. But it's interesting, too, how good food can sort of affect how you perceive a city. So for me, um, last year, I went on a trip from where I am now to Vienna, then through Czech, uh, I stayed with a friend in Czech, and then I had the, a bond card again, and I thought, okay, from Prague, uh, I'd like to just get into Germany so then I can take a cheap, high-speed train all the way home. So I did one day in Dresden, and it was just literally to get over the border, and then I can take a direct train from Dresden all the way across Germany from east to west to Zarbrucken for 19 euros, something. Like, it was, it was crazy cheap. So I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll do one day in Dresden. And I went to Dresden and again, history books or whatever. I didn't know a lot about Dresden, Um, but I learned a lot, you know, while I was there about they've completely rebuilt the church because it was absolutely destroyed in the fire bombings. Learned a lot about the fire bombings um, and also had some incredible food while I was there, Sudanese food, Indian food. Uh, like I was only there for 24 hours, unfortunately, cause I couldn't just eat for 24 hours. You physically can't do it, but I wanted to, you know, there, there were places on my list that I couldn't even get to. Um, and so I just, my, what I think of Dresden now, every time I tell somebody who's going over into like that part of Eastern Germany, I'm like, go to Dresden. They've got some amazing food. I was totally blown away. And it was, it's one of those things I had zero expectations going in but found a few nice places uh, to eat. And now it's like, I think the the world of Dresden, I think it's great.
1: Yeah. And I know Dresden was really uh, like the powerhouse of um, East German, East Germany as well. And, and there was a lot of, Soviet architecture, because you know you lost a lot of the traditional architecture from the fire bombings, and then it was a right. really grey and grimy. But out of that came amazing, I think, nightclub scenes, bars, like sort of punk sort of energy. And it was at this place that was such a uh, historically. It was somewhere that I I wanted to go, and and probably next time I'll I'll make my way there. But to have to add that layer of new migrants and food and and you know. Adding yeah. to that cosmopolitan uh, um, a vibe would be incredible.
0: Yeah, I, I say it's it's got like a sneaky good food scene because what you wouldn't think? Oh, Dresden! Oh, it's got great food, but oh my goodness, it was absolutely incredible.
1: Going back to the food of Dresden but also of, of the world and and people moving around, I think there's a strong sentiment towards identity that's coming back and that, you know, authentic, you know, my my beliefs, my identity. But there's also, as we learn, every single element of history has um, been a, a melting pot of something from history. And I think uh, that oneness of humanity is something I've been trying to focus on recently that we all... Um, on like a spiritual sort of level, but also because I'm finding it difficult in the current climate of politics and COVID and, you know, people are throwing out words like dictatorship and I'm like we're in the best state, in the best country in the world, you know, on paper and we're locking down for public health reasons but all of a sudden we're in a tyrannical regime of, you know, how dare they take our freedoms away and I guess the US has that with its anti-mask sentiment and things like that and you wonder, you know, how can I not be taken up by this outrage in a way at at the attitudes and I guess lack of perspective of people and then that lack of perspective I found has been coming towards me I've been I haven't had the perspective to understand other people's point of view do you engage at all in that I know that you're from the US but you're living overseas do you do you and you mentioned earlier how what's going on in the US is a bit you know it's a strange place to be and right now with Trump, basically, he's a divisive figure. No matter if you love him or hate him, <laughs> do you look at the U.S. and say, "What's going on there? Is it is it falling apart, or is this something that Twitter makes it seem like much more extreme than it really is?"
0: Uh, that's yeah. I don't know. It's you know, I was there all summer, and being there, it's hard to hide from the news cycle. You know, and basically, the news all summer was COVID. And the election coming up, that was it. There was basically nothing else. And since I've come back to Germany, it's been about a month. It's I haven't, you know, if I don't seek it out, I don't see it, which is almost refreshing. Mm. Um, as much as I need to be paying attention uh, because there is an election coming up. I mean, it's for me, it's not a hard decision on who to vote for. So I guess I don't have to pay attention that much. but. It's almost refreshing not seeing it all the time, um, which has been nice. And I think living here the last three years and just comparing with how things work at home, with how things work here, um, it's sort of it's shifted my my view on where I want to live in the future. I think there's a lot of you know nowhere's perfect. There are issues in in anywhere you live, Uh, but I think the issues in the U.S are just not great. And I say, I sort of had this conversation with a friend here who's, who's from LA uh, and he had a few job offers in the States and here and he was sort of thinking about what he wanted to do. And I think he went online and looked at some of the, you know, estimate your net income uh, in Germany and you put in tax bracket, this and that. And he was complaining a bit at how high the taxes are here compared to at home. And I had to say, yeah, but you get things for those taxes, like healthcare, for instance. You know, my brother just turned 26. And in the U.S., you can be on your parents' health insurance until you're 26. When you turn 26, you have to have your own, essentially. And I told him, you know, this summer he was, like, getting MRIs on his groins, on his wrists, you know, basically using what he had left because i said 26 is the worst birthday because now anytime i travel home to the us i have to make sure that i'm fully health insured because if something happens like it'll bankrupt you yeah um so we we just talking you know there's that there's the social benefits there's the cost of university in specifically germany because that's what the debate that we we're having versus the us there were just I sort of went down this long list of the benefits of maybe paying a little higher taxes versus having the money now, but you know not having necessarily the the social system that that living in a country like Germany offers you. so living here has definitely given me perspective on things that are broken in the u s and I said to him, you know the u s is a great country to live in if you can afford to live in it, but The cost of being afforded being able to live in it comfortably like it keeps going up you know and and the gap between the really rich you know middle class is like in on poverty now it's it's really it's not a country that looks after the majority of the people in it which is a shame because unless you can afford to be in the upper middle class it's not it's not a country that helps you live a comfortable life. So, yeah, that's I guess that's my opinion on the U.S. It's, you know, things are broken because they're all broken. You can't just fix one thing. It's like, obviously, I don't know how to fix it. I don't think there's any way to fix it quickly because it involves raising taxes, which nobody likes. And it's hard to run on a platform saying we're going to raise your taxes, but you won't have to pay for health care. And I don't, it's just, I'm not in politics. I'll never even pretend to understand politics, but there are better ways to do it than the current system. I don't know how that they would even get to that point, but yeah.
1: It's another advantage of travel to see and, and living elsewhere that you're able to see another way of life. But I mean, you would have seen that in Canada anyway, as well, that that's completely yeah. different across the border.
0: Yeah. I mean, I definitely see it in Canada but i've only I only lived in Canada for summers, mm, basically yeah, so I, and and I was always on I always had the health insurance from the states, yeah you know my I got a scholarship to university, so I didn't have to take out any loans to go to college, uh, which I'm incredibly fortunate to have been able to do and yeah, I mean, Canada's better, but it's not the solution i I don't know what is, but it just there's a lot that's wrong, and I mean. I hope, I had a friend of mine, I was talking to him the other day, he lives close to Paris, we went to college together, and he was asking me how I feel about November, like, am I, am I nervous? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm extremely nervous, because anything could happen, really. You know, you don't think that he could win again, but nobody thought he would win the first time. You know, I see people on Facebook, the time, one time a month I log on, or whatever, and, um, you know, I'm friends with people who are very supportive of Trump, because of where I moved to go to high school, and because of where I went to college, it's in a more conservative part of the country. So, circling back all the way to the beginning, moving to another part of the country, I saw how other people viewed things. So I see, you know, them post things on on social media, and now it's like, you know, there are people who support him uh, emphatically. I have relatives who support him emphatically. And you think, how could anybody support this guy? But you see it, people are doing it. So it, it's a bit worrisome that, yes, it could obviously happen again. And, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I have my ballot. I got it in the mail the other day, so at least I will be voting. I should get it done here pretty soon to make sure that it gets back and counted. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's um, I don't know, a lot of things. Hopefully uh, the next couple months, I think, in the U.S. will be interesting with all that happening. And, of course, whoever is the next president gets to elect at least one justice to the Supreme Court. So, I mean, that's huge as well in this election. There's a lot going on, and and it's a bit of a mess.
1: And I I thought that Trump was, uh, I guess, threatening. Is it possible? I didn't look into it enough, but can he actually choose the next Supreme Court justice?
0: Yeah. Again, I will... I will plead that I'm not as educated as I should be, but I assume that he can, and I assume the Senate will.
1: Yeah, that's right. He's got the backing of the Republicans, so I think the Repu- have to be but a the few
0: House. That,
1: the House, yeah. I,
0: I think I don't know if it's a two thirds majority. I'm not sure exactly how. I think it was. It yeah,
1: no, it reminded me. I think three three Republicans would have to cross the floor for it to fail. So, and 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 it may. Maybe there would be enough um, sentiment to to have. Three members crossing the floor to to block it, but um, and he's scary. I mean, the the U.S. presidency people say the most powerful person in the world, and then others say no, they're just a puppet. But words matter. But then also, this is a, something that lasts until their death, and and this is the reason I created this podcast. For me, was I was getting stuck into the weeds and debating little minor things, and. I wanted to get the viewpoints of so many people of so many different ideas and and talk to and i 've probably been sort of um not narrow i 've had lots of perspectives on here, but narrow in, and and i 'm not going to get necessarily a pro trumper that uh, is anti this and that and and conspiracy theories you know on, you on their page <laughs> but well I wonder is this is a debate I have often is it up is it when you 've got a, i mean this is a platform i mean you know wh- whatever you mean by a platform but do I have to, as a, as a commentator on, on, on the world in a, in a way, you know, in a very limited way, but talking to people, do I curate my guests to something that I want to put a message across of or do I have a platform where people are able to find a viewpoint? Because there are different viewpoints and, and you probably know pro-Trumpers that are amazing individuals that have this idea of the way the world should be run and, and it's against your morals and judgments you know but you go they're they're a nice person they they'd have me in their home they'd cook me a nice dinner they'd let me stay over whatever you know how do we and I, then I wonder is this social media is the world of this when you used to be in a village you used to know everyone and there was a bit of respect maybe and and now we find you're fighting with um uh, maybe not are, so, are not on social media, but those that are on social media. And, and I've been in this trap where you end up yelling at someone you love because of their viewpoint. And that wouldn't happen. I guess it does happen at dinner over Christmas, something happens or whatever. But you know what I mean? There's a hug afterwards where this brings that anti-sentiment just across the board. And, it's, and I find it as a tough time in my own personal journey or my podcasting journey, you know, what to do here. So where do you draw the line personally in terms of you know, you said you don't watch the news. Do you? Do you try to let it fade away a little bit and just connect with people as people?
0: Well, if I would, I would watch the news, but I don't know what they're saying. Um, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a lot easier over here to uh, to kind of stay out of it. And you know, I'm not yelling at people on social media. I, in general, I think, you know, I, I avoid confrontation at all costs. That was a, a joke that I used to have. Um, a few years ago that you know if there was ever an argument I would just sit on the fence or that sort of thing but I think it's mostly true you know I don't I don't really like getting in arguments with people I think everybody's entitled to their own opinion and if somebody's stuck in their ways and what if I say something or if I'm yelling at somebody I don't think it's necessarily gonna uh, it depends on the situation I guess that's but I don't know I I think especially in this topic i you know, we're talking about politics in the United States. There's very few people who are undecided, especially right now. Like you said, Trump, whatever he is, he's very decisive in the way that he makes people think. So, yeah, I still don't understand how there's a swing vote like, mm-hmm. or somebody who's undecided. It, it makes no sense to me. There, it's such polar opposites. And I, feel, I see how you could, you know, not like either one, but it's still, yeah, I don't know. Now I'm talking myself into a corner. I just try to stay out of it as much as I can, especially on social media. I don't interact with anything political. I don't post a lot anyways, really.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's the safest option. You you sort of did the, (laughs) sat on the fence with um, Israel-Palestine, which is a smart move, and you did the same with, uh, I mean, look, we know your sentiment in, in terms of US politics, but in terms of, yeah, that yelling, I think it, it just adds to the to the noise. And even though if you think you're 100% right, and I've been in that in that box so many times being politi- politically active, you know, just come on, can't you see it? But I think it, it takes a lot of, I, I read something recently, I think I shared it on on this podcast, maybe one of the episodes, but it's going to take a lot of love to fix this place sort of thing. Um, it was graffitied somewhere and I took a photo of it and I thought that's that's so true that the only way to, bridge division is through love or through food which which embodies love that we talked about before through seeing something through the eyes of another you know anyone that goes into that Jewish museum in Berlin maybe can get a sense of what it was like as a Jew during the Holocaust to feel that way and if that doesn't change the minds of some denier or some you know anti-Semite type like I don't know what will and that the fact that that stuff exists is incredible but I think it comes down to openness and travel. And anyway, we'll move from politics now <laughs> to something. <Thank> that, God. <laughs> to something that you're. Um, <laughs> and I didn't mean to get there. It some somehow happens.
0: Um, yeah, it's because uh, I'm American. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it just happens.
1: Well, it's either you know hamburgers or politics. What, what else? Yeah. <laughs> you moved to Germany to Saarbrücken for a reason. So, you know, what is, you've talked about the things you sit on the fence with. What are you doing at the moment? What are you learning? Where's your journey taking you?
0: Yeah, so I, when I, uh, I got the offer to play hockey in college, uh, and again, it wasn't, the university itself was not regarded as a top university in the US. Most people don't even know where it is. So again, to convince my parents to allow me to go there, uh, I promised I would go to graduate school at some point, which wasn't that hard of a promise because I think I always planned to go anyways. I played hockey in France, went home to California, worked for a bit, and then decided, okay, it's time to go back to school. I just feel like there's more I need to learn. I'd never had a proper education in computer science. I learned a little bit as I was doing my math degree because as part of the degree, you take some programming classes and whatnot. But really, the theory behind it, how just you know, proper education. Um so I decided okay, I'll, I'll do a master's degree in computer science. And then I applied here because my thesis advisor actually was at university with my dad in the same department under the same advisor in Vancouver back in the early 1980s. So he my advisor was doing his masters, my dad was doing his PhD at the time. And my dad always said like if you wanted go into and do this computational geometry thing, which is what I was interested in ever since I was in, I think third grade geometry was like shapes, everything. It just sort of made sense to me. It was, it was easy. That's the only way I can describe it is Mm. it just, it sort of clicked. So that's, I knew that's sort of where I wanted to go. Um, and my dad said, you know, he's one of the top guys. So if he's still doing it, I think you should apply there. So I applied here. And the way the semesters work out, uh, I applied here first and found out I got accepted here the same day that six other applications in North America were due. After I got in here, I decided, well, there's no point in applying anywhere else. This was always 1A, 1B with University of British Columbia in Vancouver. It was at that point, it was then just sort of waiting to see whether I got into Vancouver and then I would have a decision to make. I didn't. So then my decision was really easy. Uh, so I came here and that was almost three years ago, coming up a few weeks away from three years uh, that I came over here to do a master's in computer science, focusing on more the theoretical part and the geometry and graph theory. And um, yeah, that's sort of been my, my focus and my thesis is sort of, loosely but you know it, it takes elements of that but it also deals with more three-dimensional um, real world problems so it's sort of a mixture of of the two
1: what are you talking about as someone yeah. has no idea about computational geometry
0: <laughs> yeah so uh, this is how can i explain this the easiest way possible um, my thesis project basically is there are these lidar scanners which is basically a laser scanner and in the world of forestry or environmental research they do a lot of forests they scan forests with these lasers and they have all these basically you get xyz point anytime a laser hits something and comes back to the scanner so you you know where it is in space based on the time it takes to go there and back so you end up with these massive 3d they're called point clouds and it's just a collection of 3d points and you know if you were scanning this bottle, good podcasting. If you were scanning this bottle that you can't see. It's a
1: soda stream uh, bottle. Beautiful.
0: Yeah. It's a uh, dishwasher safe. Yeah.
1: And and the black um, uh, black lid, mine's white lid, but go on.
0: Black bottom too. Paint a picture. <laughs> you would get sort of these dots everywhere on the surface because the soda, it would come and hit the bottle and bounce back. And actually this is sort of see-through, so this is, might not be the best uh, because light travels through this bottle you would actually probably get another point on the backside where it hits the backside of the bottle so it's sort of you can see through leaves for instance because light travels through leaves so when you scan a tree you get all these points you get the surface of the trunk you get the where the lasers hit the leaves but you also sort of have this information on what's behind the leaf the branching structures that you don't really see with your eye necessarily. So my thesis project is, okay, how can I try to measure how much wood there is in that tree based on just a laser scan of it? So it's, it has to do with measuring the volume inside of the trunk, inside of the branches, trying to figure out, trying to pick out the branches, which is probably the hardest part of the whole thing. Yeah, just, just trying to figure out what part of space do you actually count as wood And then measuring the volume of that, that's sort of the whole process. And the way that I do it is I make these sort of spheres that are empty on the inside. So I I build up the, the trunk and branches of the tree using spheres that sort of grow and take up space. And then you can calculate how much volume the spheres take up. Well, and, it, and, it, and that was this, about as simple as I can make it.
1: And and you well, you do this. You you've, you write your thesis paper. What what do you expect might be the um, the hope of using sort of this technology? What would be the the idea of it?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I'm still working on the uh, abstract and introduction, so this is good. I need to talk about these things because I need to add them. But a lot of it, I think, it has to do with just understanding. What is there? whether it's how much wood is there uh, if I need to harvest this tree for uh, lumbering, or how much fuel is there if this ignites, um, mm. which is hugely important in Australia, also in California, in California. Yeah, especially yeah right where now. We are going. <laughs> when I was home, it was just starting, and there was we had to wear a, a smoke mask and a COVID mask. And there were two separate masks. And since I left, it got really, really bad. There were some pictures my parents sent me where it looked apocalyptic almost. It was, yeah. you know, 10 o'clock in the morning and it looked like it was middle of the night. That's how much the, the smoke had, had blocked the sun. So there's that. There's also just the health of a forest. You know, how much wood and and sort of vegetation is there. So, yeah, that's those are sort of the three main areas that I see it progressing I guess or being used in but I think although I haven't tested it I think my methods would work on any volume any solid it doesn't have to be a tree I mean it could be this bottle and it it would be able to calculate the volume as 840 milliliters so I you know I think theoretically it could work on anything I was focused on trees because it's a bit of a challenge to sort of not use the noise that the leaves incorporate into everything because they sort of, they make things quite a bit harder in in picking out what you actually need to measure. Yeah. There were a few different uh, challenges along the way and it took me, took me about once I, once I sort of circled onto my final route of the process I was going to take, I think it took about six months to, to do every, do the write all the code and, figure out everything that was going on, do the processing, and then writing it was another over-the-summer project, I guess.
1: I often don't put, you know, sports up to the, towards the elite level of sports up into computational geometry as a as a link that's made. You know, these are the categories, again, that we're putting, you know, often people put themselves in. But being in, in a, a system like college where education is so linked sport in some in so many ways especially for those that get scholarships you'd know a lot of people that are probably thriving as a sports person as well as in educational pursuits as well
0: yeah i know some people i think at least for me it wasn't so wasn't necessarily that as much it was my upbringing and my parents stressing the the value Mm. of a good education over being in the opportunity to do college uh you know I easily could have picked a different major when I was doing my bachelor's, but I, growing up, I was good at math. That was what I was at. And so when it came time to go to university, it was okay. I'll do math, which I think is not the path that, that most athletes take, but I do know some people, I mean, there are, there are some that, that are doing quite well. And, you know, one of my good friends, he's hopefully just passed his law exam. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it it is not very typical. I mean, the stereotype is that hockey players are quite dumb, and I like. To I didn't want I to say break it. Break that. <laughs> no, that's that's. You don't have to uh, convince me. I know it's out there, but I like to think that I'm, you know, a bit of a an outlier when it comes to to breaking that mold.
1: And what drives you to be into sport, to move to you know, move around with it all, uh, to leave your family and then now to do the same in pursuit of, I guess, your education. What drives you to succeed or to finish these tasks, to take it to the nth degree, to try to make it work? What What is that? Is that a uh, something you grew up being instilled with these certain values or, or did you have to train yourself? You know, what what do you do when you're at the point of almost giving up? What's What gets you through things?
0: Ooh, that's a good question. I think, you know, I, I've i been pretty fortunate in the situations that I've found myself in. And I think it's just making wanting to make the most of them. But having the opportunity to move to play hockey, I wasn't just going to putz around and, and not take it seriously. It was a big decision and it was a big thing that I did. And, you know, you want to make the most of it when you do something like that, when you go to college. and you get your education paid for, you know, yeah. Some people might say, oh, I'm paying for this education. Therefore I'm going to work super, super hard and get my money's worth. But at the same time, okay, my education's being paid for. Why would I waste that? Why would I just let that, let me work any, any less hard. So yeah, I think just, you know, trying to, to take advantage of, the fortunate opportunities that I found myself in, try to make the most and, and try to grow as much as I can in the time that I'm in those opportunities. I would say that's, that's probably what drives me is they're not always going to be there, but I, I found myself in a situation that's pretty good and uh, try to take advantage of it.
1: Yeah, no, great answer. I think it's super important to recognize privileged you know i have to do the same now in a way that i'm able to to do certain things and if i don't what am i what am i doing it's a disservice to the opportunities i've got and, and been given as well so i do get that sentiment and then and there's many that had the opposite where they escape a really horrible situation and they want to make the most of that so you can come at it from so many angles but i think it you know resilience and perspective and understanding is all all within that journey Every episode of, the, of my podcast, I ask the same question, which is, you know, have you had a moment of clarity recently that yeah, you'd like to share Yeah, I knew with this today? was
0: coming. I knew it was coming. Did you, did you prepare um, an answer? Well, I thought about it a little bit. Um, <laughs> and every time I listen to the podcast and it comes to this, I always think of something different where I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe I've had one recently or whatever. But I think... Well, I'll, I'll share one just from the summer. I mean, we talked before, uh, before we started recording, but unfortunately, um, my dad had a heart attack in April. He's doing great. He's made a uh, really great recovery. Um, but because of that, my sister and I flew home from Europe uh, beginning of May to be with the family because at that point, he was still recovering. Um, we still didn't know really what the extent of the damage was, and it was just important to be together as a family. And my brother had already gone home um, in March. So the five of us were together from once my sister and I got out of quarantine from probably mid-May until the end of August. And that was the longest that we'd ever spent together in the same place by a long way since I moved away when I was 15. So and I'm now 29. So it had been almost half my life where this was the longest amount of time of the five of us have been together. And not only that, but it was, we, we weren't leaving, you know, it wasn't sure we could all be in the same place, but it's like, I'm going to hang out with a friend or I'm going out to lunch or I won't be home for dinner tonight because I'm going to the movies or, you know, going out to a bar. But this was three months of we're home together. We're eating dinner five of us around a table every night for three months and it was really nice to just sort of and I don't think we took it for granted there were certainly you know we thought about it like this is this will never happen again really but it was really nice to just to just sort of be together as a family and there were yeah there were a couple times when there were some interesting conversations that turned into some heated debates but I think that's probably pretty normal. But it was interesting the, the first couple of weeks, you know, after dinner, we would just sort of sit around the dinner table and have conversations about anything really kind of went in all sorts of directions. But it was pretty nice that that we could all just be home together and and just enjoy each other's company. And because, you know, a, a lot of our lives, we sort of maybe been four together, three together or all of us in separate places. So. It was it was a really nice summer for that. And obviously, you know, my dad's doing well. He's recovering really well. So although the circumstances of us being together were a bit grim and a bit bleak at the beginning, um, and obviously because of the pandemic, but I think in the end, like, it was a very memorable summer. And I don't know if it was a moment of clarity, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And I don't know, it's, it's just, like... You don't want to take stuff like that for granted, I think. So, I guess it was a summer of clarity, perhaps.
1: Oh, now love it, absolutely beautiful. Thanks, Dan. It's been great to talk to you. Uh, it's been a while, but we had a whirlwind bromance over in Berlin, and. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it
0: was and quick.
1: It was, it was quick, but you know what? We 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 packed a lot in that 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 time, so it was it was it was great. But um. No, you, you, I went over it on my own. So you helped make the journey. You helped make it something really um, amazing. So I'm glad we've had the chance to chat and uh, catch up. And I'm sure we'll we'll be catching up somewhere in the world when we're allowed to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I have to come to Australia. Since I've moved to Germany, I have made so many friends from Australia. I don't know what it is. You guys are everywhere. And they always say, oh, when are you coming to visit? When are you coming to visit? But then my answer is, well, you're here. What, what am I going to do? Go to Australia and visit, but you won't be there. So I always say, Oh, I'm waiting for you to go home, but I have enough, enough friends like you that are still there that I do need to make it down at some point, whenever that time is.
1: Yeah. Hopefully sooner rather than later, but uh, yeah, I think yeah. the world's waiting to open up again. <laughs> We're all waiting. Yeah. Well, brilliant speaking to you, Dan. Thanks. I appreciate it.
0: It's yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me.
1: If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at Barney MOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.